today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday's summit between uh, President uh, Trump and uh, Putin, of course, uh, has have uh, does have lots of people chatting on, um, I guess, response to all of this. Uh, first, let's talk. Uh, let's can we play the clip of Donald Trump first? Let's go with that one. I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. All right, Senator Charles Schumer, his thoughts on all of this. Millions of Americans will continue to wonder if the only possible explanation for this dangerous behavior is the possibility that President Putin holds damaging information over President Trump. All right, let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. He is with us now. Simon, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, is is this coming to a tipping point? Is it coming to a peak? I mean, how much more can we be surprised? Well, we shouldn't be surprised at this point. Um, you know, yesterday's press conference between President Putin and President Trump. I mean, I won't I won't get into the details. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about it. There were some pretty interesting, I would say, almost breathtaking statements made by the American president in particular. Um, and there was not a whole lot of substance to the, the discussion. Very little, you know, actual policy or any of the things that, uh, that the two countries disagree with was discussed. It was all domestic politics, interference with Russia, uh, Donald Trump wisely, uh, you know, saying essentially that he believes the Russian president um, is denial. So at this point, that shouldn't surprise anybody. This is all, I think, has been telegraphed for months now, and it's been, you know, these these views have been repeated for months now. I think the real question is, are we going to see, at this point, Congress, you know, try to play a role in American foreign policy again? I mean, constitutionally, they have that right. In the past, you've had Congress play a, an interesting role at various times. But uh, right now, there seems to be very little willingness to, to do so. So I don't know if we're at a tipping point. How is the wor- the rest of the world reacting to this? Well, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think the reactions in the United States, I mean, they, they, they speak for, for those uh, around the world. There's just, it, it, it was a particularly, you know, odd meeting you know there was there was no clear agenda or if there was it wasn't well communicated uh the the way that the president so wisely you know accepted you know trump uh putin's reassurances was is surprising you're not going to see um too many foreign leaders come out and really you know uh denounce what happened with very strong words. I mean, people tend to, professionals tend to be more diplomatic than that, but there doesn't seem, there seem to be very few analysts or politicians around the world who are particularly impressed or overjoyed by, uh, by yesterday's meeting. How are Americans to interpret what he said? Well, I, I mean, I think at this point it's, it's clear that without something else happening, the White House isn't going to budge on this issue. We're not going to see significant action taken by the, the White House, for example, to um, to uh, facilitate the, the prosecution of any Russians, for example, who've been indicted by uh, by uh, Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. I mean, these are this is going to be something that's left up to other departments. The White House isn't going to get involved. As far as they're concerned, this is water under the bridge. Uh, Donald Trump still believes that the mere suggestion that Russia interfered in the election uh, delegitimizes his presidency, and he's not willing to entertain the possibility that it occurred. I mean, this is essentially, this is the, the president's, I think, of opportunity to uh, provide a very, you know, strong statement on the issue, denounce it, uh, try to thread that needle, saying that, you know, there's no evidence that the actual, you know, voting machines were rigged, et cetera, the, the lines they trod out, but it was an opportunity to to make it clear, you know, where they stand. I think he's made it clear that he doesn't want to talk about it. It's water under the bridge, and it's uh, and it's not going to be entertained by the White House. 
So how is his, we always come back to his base. Well, how is it going yeah. to play with his base, this, that, and the other? But when he stands up next to Putin and says he basically believes him more than he does his own intelligence agencies, how does that play to the base? Well, I mean, even on Fox News, you saw some some reporters, um, some talking heads, somewhat taken aback by this. Now, my suspicion is ultimately that denying it is pro- denying it and ignoring it is probably a good strategy for the president and saying that, you know, look, I received reassurances that this didn't occur. And the United States, I mean, like like Canada, like a lot of you know Western countries, I mean, we have a fairly short attention span, I think. Um, you know, public in general, we, we move on to one thing or another. And with this presidency, you know, domestically, if it's not one crisis, there's another crisis brewing, right? And just, you know, wait 24 hours, you know, have something else to talk about. So not taking the bait, so to speak, not getting into a, a prolonged discussion about this, just saying, I believe the president and of Russia and just leaving it at that, you know, it will be up to, you know, opposition, we have to the Democrats to make hay out of this. Are they capable of doing so? I mean, what is going to come is, out But let me ask that? you, let me ask you this, Simon, has the hay not already been made? I mean, how will Donald Trump react to this negative feedback, which I'm guessing isn't going to stop? I mean, and, and, and is this negative or is this shot to the foot? Is this any different than any of his other shots to his own foot? That's the thing. I'm not sure that it is a shot uh, any different than another shot to his own foot. I mean, if you look at the sort of missteps this president has made, um, many, uh, I mean, if this had had Barack Obama, for example, done many of these things, uh, you can, I think you bet that he would have suffered more politically. This White House has been very good at doing something utterly unconventional, something, you know, insulting even, um, denigrating some segment of American society and then moving on from it. And, you know, the closer we get to midterms, the more it matters, um, the better that uh, Democrats and moderate Republicans can um, use these soundbites and bring them back to haunt him in the, the future. I mean, that will help them, all things being equal. But at this point, um, the the American public's tolerance for these sorts of things, it seems to be it seems to be higher than I think a lot of us anticipated. What is in any of this for America? You know, like at least the Kim Jong-un thing, it was an issue that had to be addressed. Uh, it seemed to be getting out of hand. Uh, you might be able to give him that. But what is yeah. in his, his bromance What's with, with Putin? What's in it for America? I mean, there's lots of speculation of why Donald Trump's doing it and what's in it for him. But what, is, what does America get out of him loving Russia and, and taking off the allies? What's in that for America? Well, that's one of the really vexing questions. Um, because, you know, one of the things that hasn't been reported on that much um, from yesterday was, uh, the, uh, was President Putin's initial comment about, you know, what we discussed behind closed doors. And he listed off a number of issues. I mean, for example, um, you know, to dive into the weeds a little bit, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Free. There's good evidence that Russia is violating it right now, positioning nuclear-tipped cruise missiles um, in in its uh, its enclave of Kaliningrad on the Baltic coast. You know, this is a huge violation of a very important arms control treaty that helped keep the temperature down in the last years of the Cold War. And this has upset and concerned a lot of people in the Pentagon and the State Department. You know, that's something that probably should be discussed, not necessarily between presidents, but between arms control officials. And there's some evidence it was kind of touched on, but not really gotten into in depth. And you could say the same about, you know, um, making sure that their forces don't clash in uh, Syria, that, uh, you know, there's um, reasons to talk to the Russians about, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Crimea. There's a whole host of issues where actually, you know, Russia is essentially trampling on American interests, not even to mention the election meddling. But it seems that there were no working groups, or if there were, they were very small and were not around very long to discuss these issues, see where there's points of agreement, see what we have to, you know, work on, see if there's potential for a process to resolve some of these issues. None of that occurred. So that's the particularly vexing and frustrating part here is that there are really serious issues to discuss between the two countries, but it's not happening. So, what's in it for America? I would say they got very, very little out of this meeting. 
And, you know, it, it seems odd when you ask yourself that question, what's in this for America? Would he, you know, let's look at the reasons why some will speculate he's doing this, whether it's he refuses to admit that Russia interfered in some way uh, in the election, therefore giving him the win, you know, whether it's that or whether they have something on him on a personal basis or in regard to uh, his businesses. But it's it seems that he'd sacrifice the country for all of that. Yeah, it, it's, it's not clear, you know, what ultimately was said behind closed doors. Did, did the president agree to something? I mean, to compare it to the recent summit with Kim Jong-un, where the president signed a document essentially agreeing to use North Korea's definitions of denuclearization, North Korea's definitions of the problem, et cetera, et cetera. That was a significant foreign policy loss. We don't really know, you know, what the two men ultimately talked about. But, you know, getting at Donald Trump's motivations here, I mean, they are difficult. And as you mentioned, you know, is it the, 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 the existence of what you call compromise, that Russia has something dirty on Trump personally? Or is it, you know, and it could be this, that Donald Trump seems to honestly believe on some level that personal relationships matter more than fundamental disagreements about national interests. When he met with Kim Jong-un, he said, oh, look, I've solved this. We're friends now. There's no more risk. And likewise, yesterday he said, well, you know, up until four hours ago, we had the worst relations with Russia in the history of, you know, the USSR and the United States. And now that's fixed because I had to sit down with Vladimir Putin and I was able to charm him or convince him that we have a good relationship. There is the possibility that he he does believe that when he says it. Um, so where does he go from here? What comes out of this? What's a win for him? Uh, we're friends with Russia now. Well, again, it's not like it was a North Korean issue. It's not like it was an immediate threat. Is there, you know, a bazillion dollars in trade there that we're not aware of? Like, what's in this for America? I just keep coming back to, and, and, and how does he position this as a win? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very good question, because with the, the North Korean issue, it was easier to frame the signing of a sure of a of a, an agreement of some sort as a significant breakthrough because well he came out at the end and said the world is safe now after this yeah. the world is what what are we, the world is just confused wondering why you're running to the other team well that's precisely it and a lot of a lot of people you know they don't know about the the issues between Russia and the United States because they do tend to get technical. They're hard to turn into a 30-second sound bite about, you know, the threat of nuclear war. It's more complex than that. So it is difficult, I think. I think it will be difficult for Donald Trump to turn this into, you know, if the Singapore summit was a win, this will be harder, I think, to spin into that. That being said, this could fade fairly quickly um, from the... uh, from the, the public dialogue. You know, we'll see what happens on the southern border with the Mexi- with Mexico over the next week. So, oh, my. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. So, uh, seriously, as you were mentioning, uh, the North Korean thing, there's lots to be made, uh, uh, hay to be made about the, the G7 way back when, and then the latest NATO summit, and now the dealing with Putin. Like, how does he, how does he keep, uh, what do you, how does he top this? Wow! If you would even want to, like what? Again, I just keep looking for the prize at the end of all of this, and I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, and and that's that's where where you start to wonder because you know President Trump, he likes he doesn't seem to enjoy summits where he or meetings where he doesn't control the shots, but these one on one bilaterals where he can walk away and say, "Look, I had a great conversation." Um, His his you know negotiating partner, so to speak, keeps praise on him, he walks away. I mean, at this point, when you look at other opportunities, I mean, you know, situation with China, this trade war, which seems to now be happening, that's a tough one. That's a very hard one. And that involves, you know, the sort of nitty-gritty to resolve that Trump doesn't have a reputation for tackling, and President Xi, for example, is not going to be drawn into any such traps. Or does he go to China? Does he does he try to sit down and hammer out something on NAFTA? I mean, I don't think so. But at this point, you know, the fact that this this so-called summit in Helsinki was put together in approximately a month, 
as far as we can tell. Very little of substance came of it, but perhaps, you know, perhaps China is the next target to have a sit down, you know, President Trump, President Xi, resolve all the issues. You know, at this point, you couldn't discount it, though it, it is the president is running out of options in terms of trying to one up himself with more and more bilateral meetings. Uh, how do you think the president is feeling today? Do you think this help or hurt him? You know, I, I think overall it probably hurt him because this is the sort of thing that it does give Democrats, you know, a rallying cry. It gives him it gives them some really ugly sound bites to play, you know, come September, October, you know, that, you know, Donald Trump saying, you know, I agree with the Russian president. I, I disagree with American intelligence services. It is the sort of thing where if properly played by, you know, a very, you know, very effective communications team. It, it could bite him. And it's not getting the plaudits, even from the, the, you know, the conservative press that the uh, Singapore summit uh, did. So I would say in terms of risk reward, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't his best moment so far. But I remain skeptical that this is this is suddenly, you know, the straw that breaks the, the camel's back and um, the Republican Party on mass begins to turn on the president. Good point. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. We're going to talk about everything from uh, Elon Musk to Donald Trump to uh, uh, sex ed flip-flops. Uh, but first, let's listen to a clip. This is a diver. This is a bizarre scenario. Basically, what happened during the Thai uh, rescue for the soccer team, Elon Musk sent a submarine down uh, saying that, you know, hey, maybe this will help work. Uh, one diver took a look at it and said, you know, this guy couldn't stick it where the sun don't shine. This is nothing but a publicity stunt. There's no way this vehicle is going to maneuver in and around the rocks that it, uh, the, you know, in the cave and such. Uh, and then sort of launched on an attack on this uh, at this uh, cave explorer on Twitter uh, and and then basically said, sorry, uh, pedo guy, you really did ask for it, making reference to him being a pedophile. Uh, let's bring in, and, and you know what? Uh, I wish Elon Musk had called me that. Uh, let's uh, bring in Alyssa <laughs> Freeman because this guy's going to get a whole pile of money, isn't he, Alyssa? Oh, my. And Elon Musk really doesn't have that much left to give. So You know, at the end of the problem. day, he just wrote the guy a blank check. He might as well have just, you know, rather than inside the submarine, there should have been a large amount of money. You know, I mean, let's step back, back a bit. Elon Musk has a habit of doing this. You know, for example, when somebody died using in a, in a Tesla using the auto drive on April Fool's, he thought it was really funny to say that... Um, he had, he himself had died. He showed himself, he showed himself on a, a, lying on a Tesla with a tear stained face that says, now we're bankrupt. In, in essence, sort of like poking fun at it. He has no self awareness except for what he sees two feet in front of him, which is usually his own reflection in the mirror. Hmm. And based on his lack of self awareness and lack of what other people think, um, which can only be how he thinks. So if you, if nobody aligns with him, then therefore they must be wrong and they must be really, really wrong so that he has to denigrate them. And this is behavior that he has exhibited time after time after time. And there likely isn't any communications council or any crisis manager that is going to change him at this point. Does it matter? He's so big, he's so rich, he's so popular, it doesn't matter. Well, some people may say that, but, you know, the difference is, is that he has made a commodity that is in uh, for public consumption now. People have to trust that that is a safe commodity. They have to trust that if something goes wrong, that they can get a part for that. And apparently, you know, I think that Tesla is kind of dying by a bit of a thousand cuts here. You know, I hear that people are having a hard time finding standard parts, uh, that there's problems with production, that there's problems with financing. And that Musk himself is displaying some very, very odd behavior towards his staff. You know, I read of one thing where he um, disallowed them from having coffee breaks now. So because of that, when, they call, when he calls his senior managers into a meeting, he sips from a cup of, co- a cup of coffee in a china cup 
just to irk his staff. So, wow. you know, his morality and his uh, point of view on the public at large that he needs to support them is not in line with where it should be. You know, Alyssa, it sounds like he's person he's pers- he's perfect for the job of president of the United States. You know, they have a lot in common, Scott. You know, you say that, I know, with tongue firmly planted in cheek, but quite honestly, they have a lot in common. A lack of self-awareness, a lack of why others don't believe that they're always right. And, you know, this is, you know, to have that type of ego can be your greatest gift, but whatever your greatest gift is, is also your greatest liability. So what do you do to offset that? You surround yourself with people that you'll listen to. And we'll, we'll give you advice, and hopefully you'll heed that advice. The problem with both of these gentlemen is that they may have lieutenants all around them, but maybe they're just sounding boards so that he can hear, they can hear the sounds of their own voice versus all the warning signals that they should be getting. So it appears like this is affecting the shares of the company, uh, or it could be, just as you said, some you know a, a couple of bad ducks in a row, so to speak. Uh, how does this affect his company? Well, it affects his credibility. You know, if somebody is going to call uh, someone who could really be termed a hero and call him such a derogatory name, I don't even want to repeat it, even though you could read his tweet. But, uh, you know, that just shows a colossal lack of self-judgment. And there are people who base a brand on who stands behind it. And really, the only person standing behind Tesla that is recognizable to anyone especially one, somebody who is, actually has the money to buy a Tesla, they know about Elon Musk. And if Elon Musk cares so little about the common man, which is who's buying his product, quite honestly, then why should they buy his product? And it also doesn't instill faith on Wall Street. In the first incident where he faked that April Fool's Day car crash, he had to write down $2.5 billion on the company. So the same thing is happening now. So I... You know, you also have to ask yourself the question, Scott, is this sort of a self-destruction ploy? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. You know? I mean, because a guy of this power to say, you use the term, to, you know, it's one thing to insult somebody, but to use that term, especially in a scenario like this, my goodness, that's pretty strong. It's really just the, the thinking of a man-child, if you, you know, yeah. if you really want to know what I think. And it's someone who never learned or who, who forgot to put his filter in in the morning, the kind that, you know, stops your brain from filtering messages to your mouth. There's a lot of people like that in our lives, and we know what that's like, you know, think before you speak. Mm. It's a very, very simple rule, but there are people who don't need that good advice. Hmm. Uh, all right, speaking on that note, let's bring up Donald Trump. Your thoughts on what happened yesterday. How does he position this? How does, he, how does the White House move forward? Well, you know, my two words after hearing all this and watching it live was just wow. You know, there's a couple things going on. Apparently there's a statement coming out at 2 o'clock that is going to be very interesting. You know, he really thought that the Russia, the Helsinki meeting was a win. And then by the time he watches the news, even his own sources, for example, his own favorites, Fox News, which is often, you know, termed as state TV, There were many commentators against him, and I watched uh, a few of those today, too. You know, and there's a lot of Republicans who are openly coming out against him. Even Mitch McConnell said that this was, you know, not our finest hour. But, you know, none of those Republicans are going to take that next step to say, okay, this has to be dealt with, and this this is what needs to be done. Because they're all shaking in their boots that, you know, should they defy Donald Trump, they know what kind of hot water that they will be in. So, so they just pretend no one notices? You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of Fire and Fury, and I bought it a while ago, Scott, the Michael Wolf book, and I kind of even couldn't bring myself to read it. And then I finally started it this weekend, and it seems that what the Trump White House does is that they try and insulate him from any bad news. He doesn't want to hear bad news. You know, and while I was reading this, I'm kind of wondering, did he see all those protest marches in London, England, with uh, a caricature of him blown up as a big balloon uh, floating through the streets of London. I wonder if he even saw that. I think he is oblivious to anything that he doesn't want to hear. But when he saw it on Fox, you know, that is a game changer. 
And he's honestly gobsmacked at the reaction. And what's even more troubling is that I saw on my Facebook um, feed that there was a post from a uh, Republican uh, broadcaster on Fox. I believe her name is Trish Regan. And she said, this is absolutely not his finest hour. This is practically treasonous. This actually shows collusion. And, you know, we, we are in trouble. So then I thought, well, I wonder what people are saying. What comments, what the comments are like. And Scott... Honestly, it would blow your mind. His base, honest to goodness, doesn't think that he has done anything wrong. That's my next. And that this is Hmm. much ado about nothing. Then what's interesting is you do get Republican voters, many of whom may have voted for him. And some of them are veterans. So it seems that it's starting to cross. It's like you're sort of dissecting what type of Republican are you? So if you're more of a liberal Republican, you're honestly disgusted. If you are a veteran Republican, someone who has laid down their life in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, in Desert Storm, all of these um, servicemen and women are absolutely appalled and are saying that this is not my president. However, you will get the stalwarts who only see the headline and don't read deep into it and consider anybody an enemy of President Trump who will who continually support him and you read this with your mouth open but you also have to realize that these are the people who put him in power in the first place. Uh, we we always talk about you know and again since since this president took office oh my goodness this is going to bring him down if he doesn't uh, refine himself act more presidential this will bring him down and he just there's one event after another after another after another after another that would have brought any other leader down he seems to keep going is there anything different now what's different well, with this scenario well it's interesting you and I I think have both called him the Teflon Don and he really is because nothing seems to stick. The difference with this is is that the Republican establishment and even those who, who are not part of the establishment are openly speaking out against him. You know, even Representative Lindsey Graham, I believe, from South Carolina, um, he said, don't bring that soccer ball anywhere near the White House. It's probably bugged. The difference between <laughs> this is, yeah, I, I, I thought that was hysterical. Oh, that's perfect. Well, and why? It? And why wouldn't it be? Well, exactly. And he threw it to Melania, who I'm sure had no idea that ball was coming her way. And then, of course, Putin went over and said, no, hold it this way, right up to your face. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Now talk loudly and distinctly. So, you know, I think that there has been such backlash. You know, I've never seen in recent memory, even of all the things that have happened to Trump, I have never seen in recent memory wall-to-wall news coverage about this on every on every outlet and the other thing too scott is this even before i left the house i'm watching cnn and there was a commercial and now you know we in cnn you often do get the u.s-based commercials the republicans are out they have edited together ads and they must be have bought time like crazy and the commercials are starting because the one thing i was wondering is if you know, the Democrats are going to capitalize on this. They better not wait. Hmm. They better start getting their, their men and women who are running in primaries and get, getting ready for the November midterms. Get out there now while it's fresh in the public memory, because you know how the news cycle goes. Yeah. One day, two days, three days, people forget. But this is the first time I saw an actual, well-put-together attack ad. You know, we, we, we were talking about the base, and it doesn't matter what happens, Teflon Don, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he's constantly uh, campaigned on the mantra of making America great again. You know, even when he did that, you know, bizarre meeting with Kim Jong-un, uh, at least he signed the big book that there was no more bombs. And he, you know, whether it's true or not, it appeared as if he, 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 he calmed a situation down. What's in any of this for America? The whole Putin thing. What is in this for America? And at what point does the base say, this, you know, loving uh, Russia and hating our allies isn't doing anything for me? You know, the bromance with Putin isn't doing. What is that doing for America? How is it well, making it great again? I don't. Well, it's not. And I don't think that that really hit home until the demonstration of what we saw in Helsinki. I think that people honestly thought that 
many people thought that maybe Trump had pulled something off with Kim Jong-un. And all I think that what Helsinki has shone a very bright light on is that Trump, Putin, has Trump doing all his bidding. So trying to disrupt the world order, trying to disrupt NATO, trying to pull apart the European Union, which is really what's standing in Putin's way. And by having Trump do his dirty work for reasons that we don't as of yet know why, um, the biggest one is is that this is his way of thanking Putin for giving him the election. But for reasons we don't know why, Trump is now, uh, people, feel the, people feel, honestly, that Trump is acting as, you know, Putin's marionette. And Putin pulls the strings and Trump does as he says. So I think that's what many people are really starting to think. The base, the true, true, true base does not. Um, but there are many Americans who, who do think that. And I think if they keep this narrative up, this could have serious ramifications in the midterms, which is what all the Republicans are worried about, Scott. And the reason why a lot of them aren't going that next step to say, let's impeach him, which many of these attack ads are with uh, impeach hashtags, by the way, they're afraid because many of their constituents are the base. Hmm. How will Donald Trump interpret interpret him as being weak? Because again, there's a as you mentioned, uh, whether his base buys in or not, there's certainly a lot of credible people on both sides that have called him a puppet. They've called him weak. They've called him uh, well. I'll leave it at that. Um, how is he going to interpret that? Because he's usually you know king of the castle kind of a guy. He's a guy's guy. So how is he going to react to being called weak? Oh, he's probably beside himself. He's probably apoplectic. He's probably losing his hair. I mean, this is, you know, you don't call um, Trump weak. Look what happened when he felt that uh, that was intimated by Prime Minister Trudeau. Look what happened then. You know, he watched the news on mm. Airport One and felt that he had been slighted exactly. by Trudeau. So how is he, he not going to... went bananas. How so is... You can only imagine. How is he going to how is he not going to shoot himself in the foot here? How is he not going how does he keep this deck of cards from coming down? Cuz I believe this is a very crucial point in how he handles this. And he'll either handle it well, either by blowing it off and and just water off a duck's back, or it'll eat him alive and he'll just go off the deep end. Well, here's the thing. When we watch the Helsinki remarks, we notice I notice, I think everybody else noticed that Trump was super well-scripted, did not go off the reservation, and kept to the absolute script. When he was asked questions, he kept to some very familiar tropes. Well, there's fault on both sides, just like he said in Charlottesville. There's fault on both sides. There's fault on our side, and there's fault on their side. I'm like, well, where have we heard this again? And then he fell back on the the Democrats issue. It's all because of the Democrats, another familiar trope. So, you know, I honestly, because... You know, every week is like a box of Cracker Jacks with this administration, and you never know what prize you're going to get inside. At 2 o'clock, we're all going to know a little bit more, and you know that his team is doing damage control. I can hardly wait to the next um, press uh, briefing with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Like, that's going to be a treat because, you know, she is the mistress of deflection. So how they're going to wiggle out of this, I have no idea because the support... And the backlash is not going away. The mistress of deflection. I love it. (laughs) Speaking of mistress, uh, sex ed, uh, education, the PCs are backtracking. We've only got a little bit of time left. Your thought on their flip-flop and how they're handling this. Uh, Is this a hot potato they're trying to put out, or is this a sign that the government's listening to the people? Well, I think it's, you know, big on bluster, short on details, as we all know. And then the one thing that they did was say, okay, let's just go back to 1998, which might as well be, let's go back to 1958. Um, I think that they wanted to get some quick wins with the government, with the constituency, which is us, Ontarians. They said that he said he was going to fire the $6 million man. He said he was going to roll back sex ed. Tick, tick. You know, he said he's he's sort of making good on all his promises. How they plan to do all these things, well, we don't know. I predict that there will be, out of that whole curriculum, much of it, all of it, I agree with, but there will be a change in maybe five to six paragraphs, and honestly, 
to capitulate to this minority, this vocal minority that is all upset about teaching our kids what's really happening today yeah. and expecting that parents do such a good job. I mean, really, Scott, are, are you great on teaching? No, I'm, I'm for the sex yeah. ed revamp. Right. That's, I'm, right. I'm all for the so, new one. Oh, it's big on bluster, low on details. I think what they'll do is they'll... I think we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see the same thing with maybe, you know, if they do make a change to five or six paragraphs, this, this, this administration still has to remember one thing. People did not vote for Doug Ford they voted against Kathleen Wynne, so they need to tread carefully. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots have uh, seen and heard the Lancaster flying around uh, Hamilton over the years and such, that mistakable, uh, unmistakable sound. You know when it is in the air. Uh, think about if, wouldn't it be cool if we had two? You'd listen in stereo. Uh, let's bring in Dave Rohr, president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. He is with us now. David, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Oh, hi, Scott. Glad to be with you. Uh, before we get started, I, I can't, of course, get started without you commenting on the passing of Dennis uh, Bradley and, and what he meant to the museum. Well, he was everything to the museum. Uh, we wouldn't have Canada's largest flying museum in the hammer without Dennis Bradley's vision, tenacity, uh, his ability to share his passion with so many other people and volunteers who helped him get there. And we are what we are today because of his vision. He is our, uh, he was our primary founder, and uh, it's a great loss. How did this whole thing get started? Well, it started with Dennis Bradley. Um, he was a young man uh, at the University of Western Ontario. He was a big man, six foot six. He was a large stature, played football for the Mustangs. Uh, Hamilton Ticats even expressed interest in him as a young man, but his passion was to fly, and he wanted to be a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot. But unfortunately, because he was six foot six, he's too uh, big. He, he was too big, yeah. and uh, wow. so he, he went into the, his family's meatpacking business, but he always pursued his passion for aviation, and as he pursued that, he and uh, three other fellows got together and decided they'd like to get a World War II aircraft and restore it, and that started uh, what became the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in 1972. Many would, and I remember visiting this place early on, uh, certainly not at that point, but uh, later on, and, you know, just walking around the museum, and there were the, the planes that were on display, and then there were those that were in the process of being uh, assembled, then there were those that were just still in pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having this vision and, and wanting to do this is one thing, but how do you make this viable? How do you make it work? How do you explain the interest? Well, I think, uh, first of all, you know, you, a good leader never asks anybody to do something he's not willing to do himself. And so Dennis was every bit that. And uh, it was his passion and excitement and commitment and enthusiasm that if you stayed around him very long, it, it was infectious. And you picked it up and you, you, got, you caught the dream. And once you did, then there was no stopping a group with the same mission. And that was really, that was Dennis. Uh, and uh, he led this group uh, through... Tremendous adversity, the February fire of 93 being one of them, and yet emerged just like the flight of the Phoenix into our new uh, then 1996 110,000-square-foot building that we're in today. He was the leader. He was the one that kept everybody pulling in the same direction, kept them motivated, and kept it fun. And, uh, and I think that's why we are where we are today. And uh, he put a lot of his own resources into it. Are you amazed by the support that the public still gives you over time and, and that the interest they still have in this and, and how proud they are of this museum? Well, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, I'm humbled by it, to be honest. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be involved in the museum to help keep this legacy alive that Dennis started and, and so many also contributed. So many veterans came back after World War II and got involved and worked on getting the Lank flying. Uh, to be to be part of it today, uh, to be part of this legacy, I'm I'm a ex Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, and it's just a privilege for me to be uh, associated and to help keep our our aviation history and uh, heritage alive. Considering considering what these guys all started with, uh, how do you think he felt with it in 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 the in the current form that it is now? What was his vision? Would he want it to see it go even farther than what it is? 
where it is. Well, yeah, I think he, yeah, Dennis was, uh, you know, Dennis was never satisfied with the status quo. I, I think that he was uh, always wanting to expand and grow, and and uh, the museum, because in the end, uh, in the last uh, years of his life, he was an honorary uh, lifetime board member. And uh, we uh, we have reviewed many expansion plans, and he's been part of many of those. And uh, and they're on paper, and 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 they're shovel in the ground, ready to go projects once we get the financing. So, and Dennis was a big part of that. Yeah, status quo was never. If you weren't going forwards, you were going backwards. All right. So tell us about the second Lancaster and the possibilities here. Well. Um, Last year in September, the uh, the city of Toronto, which t- took back possession of F- uh, Lancaster FM 104, built by Victory Aircraft in probably January 44, came off the line uh, at the site of Pearson Airport today. Uh, it was given to the city of Toronto in 64, and it was on the lake uh, shore in Toronto from 66 to 99, I believe. And at that point, it was taken down for refurbishment and uh, and reconstruction. And the Toronto Air and Space Museum at that time was uh, uh, struck a deal with the city, as I understand it, to do that. Unfortunately, uh, that museum did not survive. And uh, so when it closed, uh, the city eventually took back ownership of, uh, of their Lancaster, which was disassembled and in parts. And last year, just announced for the first time that they were going to deaccession the aircraft. And so they asked for bids to go to the Economic Development Committee chaired by Councillor Thompson uh, from Scarborough, I believe. And so we uh, became aware of that. We did put a bid in for the airplane, as did other parties. And our initial bid did not involve the total restoration of the airplane, but but the uh, making parts of the airplane totally interactive and uh, and with augmented virtual reality to give people the sights, the sounds, and the experience of, of flying a Lancaster. And uh, and then also to have the turrets fully operational and restored, and and to continue to tell the history of FM 104 and its association with the city of Toronto. Well, through the deliberations, uh, a group of citizens from Toronto, uh, save FM 104 or FM 104 ever, uh, came forward and they made a strong bid that they wanted the airplane to stay in Toronto, and uh, they were given extra time to to put their submissions in. And when I saw that, I thought, you know, I really support their bid. I, I really think that they should be the first ones, the first right of refusal, if they can do it. Well, last uh, July 9th, uh, just last week, Councillor Thompson uh, announced publicly that their bid was no longer being considered. It was, uh, it was dead. And so at that point, uh, they were recommending or going to recommend that the airplane go to the British Columbia Aviation Museum in Victoria, uh, BC, or it would go to Edenville, where it is incidentally stored in pieces in a hangar there. And at that point, I thought, you know, I didn't want to undermine or do anything to weaken the bit of the tr- citizens of Toronto. But at that point, I felt as a citizen of the Golden Horseshoe and as a partner and member and neighbor of GTA, we should step up and and undertake a 10-year commitment to the, restore the airplane to static operating condition and to thoroughly examine the possibility of whether it could feasibly be restored to flying condition because we've done this, we know what's involved, and uh, and in any event have the airplane fully restored, if even not to flying condition, to static and operating condition so that all the citizens of the Golden Horseshoe can learn about this airplane, see this airplane, and learn the history of FM-104. And particularly those in the GTA will still have their bomber. So we uh, put in an amendment to our submission to Councillor Thompson and uh, copied uh, Mayor Tory and uh, asked them uh, to please consider this option at no cost to any taxpayer and that we would undertake to uh, to probably take a $2 million project to static condition and probably a $5 million 10-year project to flying condition if if it's feasible in terms of the airworthiness and condition of the aircraft. And that we would do that because we felt... uh, in honor of the 10,000 people who worked and lived in the GTA and built those airplanes in honor of uh, FM 104's history and connection to Toronto, that that's what we should do. So that's uh, that's what we did. And uh, so we're not exactly sure what the outcome is going to be yet, but uh, we've, we've ventured our best foot forward, and perhaps in the legacy of Dennis as well, <laughs> to take on a... Isn't that bizarre, eh? Isn't that yeah. funny how it all works out? Yeah, to take on a very significant project. When will you know the his? When will you know the outcome here? 
Well, I talked to Councillor Thompson uh, yesterday. Uh, I tried to reach him for the last few days, and he he did return my call yesterday. And he told me uh, that as far as his committee was concerned, they wouldn't entertain our amendment and that uh, they were recommending to City Council of Toronto that it go to British Columbia Aviation Museum in Victoria and that if they were, for whatever reason, unable to take the airplane, that it go to Edenvale. And uh, uh, I Why? asked him if, well, uh, he said that they had, uh, through their deliberations and the staff recommendations, that's what they were. And uh, he didn't tell me exactly why, but uh, he said that, that the matter was closed as far as he was concerned. And so I asked him at that time, I said, well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, because you're a committee of the council, uh, would not your recommendation have to go to council for ratification? And he said, yes, it would. It does have to go to Toronto City Council for ratification. And I said, well, then, is there any avenue or opportunity for us to ask for reconsideration? And he said, well, I think the deal was fait complete. However, if there was a motion in council by one of the Toronto councillors to revisit uh, this uh, issue and to reexamine uh, possibilities for the uh, deaccession of the airplane, then that could, uh, that could be considered by council and if voted upon could happen. So that's really where it's at right now. So this still could be a decision, still could be months away? Well, uh, hopefully not months away, but I, I think they want to move with some urgency. Uh, and I think they were going to, I think it's going before council before the end of the month for a vote. So if there was a motion and council brought forward at that time and accepted by the council, uh, then it would come back and, and then we would probably appear before the uh, committee or council with our proposal in detail, which we have. And, uh, and then it would be uh, for a vote uh, for council to decide whether it would stay in the Golden Horseshoe area or whether it would go out west or other parts of Ontario. What would be the difference between this and the one we currently have? Well, uh, they're sisters. Uh, ours is FM213. There was an order for 300 Lancasters built in Canada, and then there was a second order for 200. So we built the first 300, and those were the KB series aircraft starting at 700 to 999. And then the second 200 that were ordered were FM aircraft, and they and they started at FM, basically 100, and went to, uh, and but of that 200, only 130 were built. So they, uh, this airplane is FM 104, and our plane is FM 213. Hmm. So they they were built. Uh, ours came off the line in April of 45. This airplane would have come off in late December, early January of 45. So they're actually the same type of airplane, same mark of Lancaster, Mark 10, built by Victory Aircraft. So they're sister airplanes. So identical. They're very identical. The big uh, uh, structural issue with this aircraft is that when it was mounted on the waterfront in Toronto at Centennial Park, uh, the main structure of the airplane, uh, the central structure, which is the main strength of the airplane, uh, was cut with uh, cutting torches to Ooh. allow it to be mounted. Uh. So that is a major setback in terms of air flying airworthiness. Not to say that, you know, I don't think anybody can say that it can't be restored to flying condition, or better put, that it could be restored to flying condition without a detailed examination of exactly what airworthiness and certification components we would need to fabricate and put in the airplane. We're willing to undertake that examination as part of the restoration of the airplane, but I think it would take a detailed um, work and analysis, which could take uh, a year or a year and a half of examining the airplane very carefully and then coming up with the repair scheme and sourcing uh, where that can all be done. It would so seem I, it would seem a drag that, you know, you've got this jewel sitting right in your lap, but unfortunately it's got a hole cut in the bottom where they stuck a <laughs> mount through it. Like yeah, that. there wasn't, wasn't a lot of vision by the people who mounted <laughs> these airplanes. Uh, but, um, we, you know, nobody can say whether it would be restored to flying. We, we can say we could restore it to taxi, uh, have the engines operate and taxi the airplane. Right. And if, it's, if it is feasible, uh, both technically and financially, we, we would undertake to certainly look at all possibilities of putting, putting it in the air. Wow. But it would be a t- it's a 10-year project. So what about the history of this plane? What did it see? 
Well, uh, again, coming out of the uh, uh, coming out of the factory in January of forty uh, four, the last it, batch, yeah, yeah, it was the last batch, and it really didn't see any combat. Yeah, but it did serve with the Royal Canadian Air Force, as did ours, and it was used in Marine reconnaissance or patrol, mm-hmm. as as was ours, and uh, most of our Canadian Lancs that uh, served served till. Uh, we retired the Lancasters in 1963-1964, so this airplane was retired at that time, and it was given, presented to the City of Toronto in 66, and it was put on display at the park at that time as so, a static airplane. So just remind everybody, how many of these are left? Where are they? Well, there were 7,377 built, 430 Canadian built Lancasters, uh, half of those were lost in the war. Then the rest were in New Zealand, Australia, and UK and Canada. Uh, today, there's only two left flying in the world: ours right here in the Hammer, and uh, the other one owned by the Royal Air Force and RAF Coningsby. There are probably about 12 Lancasters worldwide that are in various museums, static, uh, but only two flying. Unbelievable! Wouldn't it be hilarious? Wouldn't it be incredible if you if you got a third one up there? Well, it would be terrific, and I also think, you know, uh, I think it would be a great thing for Hamilton and for the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum to to be of assistance to Toronto and to the greater Toronto area in preserving their history, helping them preserve their history. And uh, we're willing to step up and take that commitment and, and not ask any taxpayer to put a dime forward. We will obviously ask volunteers and uh, probably do some crowdfunding and event funding, but it'll be on a voluntary basis. And I'm well, I'm hoping we'll get the opportunity to do it. I'm hoping Toronto will see the benefit of it, and for citizens in this area to to know and remember and and have their pet, their history live on. Well, and as you said, there's so much local history to this. You know, uh, just where it was built, everything. I mean, why send it to BC? I mean, here, you know, everyone can enjoy it, including those that that uh, in southern Ontario, whether it's Toronto or Hamilton. Well, that's it. And, uh, you know, I've heard so many stories from so many uh, citizens in Toronto that said, you know, as they, their dad and their mom used to take them to the park and they would see the airplane or, or maybe their great uncle or grandfather flew the airplane or flew Lancasters. And there's so much history there. And uh, and, and not to belittle uh, other parts of Canada in no. any way, uh, but I, th- I just felt, you know, uh, Toronto obviously own the as- asset. They're going to make the decision that they think is right and, and will respect that, whatever it may be. But I just thought we should at least put our best foot forward to try and help if we can. Dave Rohr has been with us, President and CEO of Warplane Heritage Museum. Dave, if people want to find out more about the museum, where do they go? They go to uh, www.warplane.com. We've got a brand new website, we've got all the facets of our program. We uh, we do a bunch of things there. We fly. Uh, we have events. We have corporate events. We have weddings. We have memorials and everything in between. <laughs> All right. If you haven't seen it or haven't been up there in a while, check it out. It's the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. President and CEO Dave Rohr has been with us. Dave, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.